Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn them to Luke chapter 2. And you, there are Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. I believe it's somewhere around page 156, 157. No, 856, 857. This is our text for this morning, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Before I read our passage this morning, though, I have a, a correction to make. Uh, a couple days ago, I got a text from my sister, and she said, I listened to your sermon from a few weeks ago, and I really enjoyed it, but I'm curious, can you tell me, do you think that if the Son, who was eternal, ceased to be God to become man, did he then become God again after his resurrection and ascension. And I texted her back and said, what are you talking about? What it, why do you think I think that? <laughs> and she said, well, in your sermon, at the beginning of your sermon, you said that the eternal son became man and ceased to be God. And I thought, oh boy, I hope I didn't say that. And so then I frantically went back to our podcast and listened to the first minute of my sermon. And not one of you threw a tomato at me when I said it. So I'm disappointed in myself, but I have to be honest, I'm a little bit more disappointed in you. What I meant to say, what I, what I meant was that the eternal son became a man, yet this is the wonder of it all, without ceasing to be God. He did not divest any of his divinity or godhood when he became a man. And that's something hard for us to understand. Um, but it is something that the scripture clearly teaches. So I wanted to clarify that in hopes that I would not be struck by lightning anytime this Christmas season. Luke chapter 2. Here then, church, these are the words of God. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you and praise you this Christmas Eve morning. We pray now that as we celebrate with our family the birth of your Son, our Savior, that you would cause our hearts to be filled with joy for all that you've done. As we look to your word, even now, Lord, may you remind us 
of the wonder of Christmas, of the wonder of what you have done and are doing in this world. And may we go away from here with praise on our lips, joining the angels saying, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. We pray all this in the wonderful and precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if I were to ask you to name the various characters of the Christmas story, I wonder who would be the first to come to mind. I'm guessing most of us, if we were asked who are the characters in the Christmas story, most of us, the first people who would come to mind are Mary, Joseph, and of course, Jesus. But then if we were pressed further, who else was a part of the Christmas story? Who else would we mention? Well, maybe we'd mention the innkeeper, even though, as you just saw in the text that I read, he's not in the passage at all. In Matthew or Luke, there is no innkeeper in any of the accounts, but we figure it's safe enough to assume that if there was an inn, there must have been a keeper. There must have been someone that they talked to who said, I'm sorry, we have no room here. So there's the innkeeper, and who else is there? Well, we just read about the shepherds in the fields keeping their watch over their flocks by night. And then think about last week. Who did we talk about last week? Who were those characters that we talked about? Well, Elizabeth and Zechariah, John the Baptist. Hopefully, by, uh, by the end of the sermon last week, you see how you saw how they fit into the Christmas story. They're indeed a part of the Christmas story. And then remember, we have the angel Gabriel, who comes not only to Joseph but to Mary, and he came to Zechariah. And then in our passage this morning as well, we saw the heavenly host praising God for what he was about to do, or what he had done, I should say, in the birth of Jesus Christ. And then if we flip over to Matthew, his gospel, there are a couple other characters, aren't there? We have the wise men. We assume there were three because there was three gifts, but there could have been more probably at least three, who came. And then Matthew's Gospel also tells us about another character uh, who is not so much a popular or good character. That is Herod, the king of the Jews, as he styled himself. The man who tried to kill Jesus, and in his attempt in doing so, he ended up slaughtering countless uh, number of male infants in that region. Well, with with all that said, we might consider that our list is complete at this point, but there's another character in the story of the birth of Christ that we don't generally give much attention to or think of. And that might just be because though he's named, it it seems like in in the passage that he's just named in passing, more than as if he had any part to play in the Christmas story. But in fact, as we will see, he does have a role to play. Because of this man's decree, it came about that our Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so now I've given it away, haven't I? We find our often uh, missed character, overlooked character in chapter 2, the very first verse that I read. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, or as the old authorized version says, should be taxed. Now this is an interesting way to begin the story of the occasion for Christ's birth. Augustus, Caesar Augustus, from the standpoint of man at that time, was the ruler of kings. 
He was the ruler of the greatest kingdom on earth, the Roman Empire. And remember that Luke is telling us the story of the coming of the true king of kings, the son of the Most High, as the angel said to Mary, the one who would be the son of David, who would sit on David's throne and who would rule forever and rule a kingdom which would topple all the other kingdoms of this earth. So it's by no coincidence that in the story of Christ's birth, in this narrative of the birth of our Savior, Luke mentions Caesar and his decree. These are two different sorts of kings with kingdoms that differ greatly, but they are on a fundamental level at odds with one another. So, you might be wondering who was Caesar Augustus and how does he impact the way that we understand the Christmas story? Well, first of all, Caesar Augustus was not his birth name. He was not named Caesar Augustus when he was born. His uh, name, Caesar, he inherited that name from Julius Caesar. And Augustus was not a name, but it was actually a title that was given to him by the Roman Senate in 27 BC. So his birth name was Gaius Octavius. He was named after his father and named after his grandfather. And he was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, who named him, who named Octavius, his adopted son and heir just before he died. Now, even though Julius Caesar had done this, it took many years of political maneuvering and military might and several wars for Octavius to establish himself as the very first Roman emperor with the exalted title Caesar Augustus. Augustus' reign spanned from 27 BC all the way until he died in AD 14. And during that time, during his reign, he was politically and militarily speaking the most powerful man in all the earth. He was the head of the vast Roman Empire, which had control over the territory around the Mediterranean Sea, most of Europe, and a portion of North Africa and Western Asia. That was about as close as it gets to world domination. And Augustus was at the helm of all this. He had the power, this man, this one man had the power to declare that all the subjects of the Roman Empire be registered, and they had to be registered. He had the power to exact taxes from every nation and region that had been conquered by Rome. And this is what we find him doing in verse 1 of our passage this morning. Luke tells us about this worldwide registration of Caesar because this is what prompted Mary and Joseph to make their journey to Bethlehem. But while the most powerful ruler on earth was exercising his power, making his decrees, what we must understand and see is that the God of the universe was fulfilling his plan and his purpose for this world. The prophet Micah had foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And unbeknownst to Caesar, his decree would be the means by which the word of God would come to pass and Jesus, the king of kings, would be born in the city of David. So here we find our first lesson. It is in this contrast between Caesar and Christ that the secular rulers in this world may for a time exercise great power and might, 
But none of their efforts can stay God's hand in establishing His King and His kingdom that is going to outlast all of them. Consider for a moment. Imagine you were Mary or Joseph. You were in their place. You know that the babies do any time. Then you hear about this decree that was sent out by Caesar Augustus. And what happens? Well, your heart drops. This is just another reminder to you that you're at the mercy of this pagan tyrant who knows nothing of the God of creation and cares nothing for him. And now, because of this decree, you have to make the long and arduous journey to Bethlehem from Nazareth, a three- to four-day journey that you would have probably made on foot. And there was no guarantee that you would find a place to stay once you got to Bethlehem. And Mary is about to give birth. Now, I wonder what you would do in that place. I tell you what I would do if I were in that place. I would probably start complaining. I would complain about the secular overlords. I would complain about taxes. I would complain about Caesar and the fact that he has a God complex. And then I would focus on the difficulty of the trial in front of me, and I would lose sight of the promises of God concerning his anointed king. Now, thankfully, we don't live in the Roman Empire, but even still, what Augustus represents for us is the secular rulers of every age who seek to establish a humanistic empire, one in which man is at the center of it all, and especially one man like Augustus. And as Christians, in every nation today, look at the direction of their political leaders, as we look at the exercising of power in our nation to promote man and his ways over God and God's ways, what are we tempted to do? Well, we're tempted to complain and despair. But we're to resist that temptation. What we see here in the Christmas story is that not one of God's promises in the end will go unfulfilled. He's at work in this world. God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we are reminded of this every single time we read the Christmas story, you see. Every single time we read the account of our Savior's birth, we come to the very first line. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, if God used a pagan emperor in the first century to bring about his plans and promises regarding the birth of his son, then it ought not to be surprising to us that he can use secular leaders and governments even today to serve his purposes in establishing the kingdom of Christ, despite their intentions. Now, that's not to say there won't be trials and tribulations for the church. Of course, we know there will. Why? Because the scripture promises us that. But it is to say that the victory of Christ and his bride is secure. God is at work. We read the Christmas story and we learn once again, God is at work in this world accomplishing his plan. The Caesars of the world may set themselves up against God and his anointed. But what did we just hear in Psalm 2? What does Psalm 2 tell us? Psalm 2 tells us that God, while while Caesars of this world set themselves up against God and his anointed, God sits on his heavenly throne. And what is he doing? Not fretting. Not crying. Not despairing. Laughing. He isn't nervous, nor is he oblivious. He laughs, 
No earthly decree escapes his notice. No exercise of human might can foil his plan of salvation for this world in Jesus Christ. And so we continue on with our story in verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. The announcement of Christ's birth is that the one and only Savior and Lord of this world has come. He is the Christ. That is, He is the Messiah. He is God's anointed and promised King. The one God had promised who would come to reign and to save And so the angels sing the praises of God on high for the good news that He has sent His Son to us. And that means that the peace has come and the peace will come, the peace of God. But there was another announcement. There was another announcement that was going around the world right at this very same time. It was a rival announcement to that of the angels from heaven. An announcement that came not from above, but from below. This announcement has actually been preserved for us in stone. You think I'm speaking hypothetically. I'm not. I'm speaking very literally. And not like the kids mean it when they say literally today, but really literally. It's been preserved for us in a stone. It's called the pre-calendar inscription, and it dates back to 9 B.C. And it celebrates the glorious reign of Caesar Augustus. Listen to this announcement. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings, or that is the gospel, the good news for the world that came by reason of him. Providence sent this man Augustus who was called a God and who would be the savior of the world. And according to this announcement, his birth was the beginning of the good news. Good news for all mankind, a new era for this world, a new era that was called the Pax Romana or the Pax Augustana. That was the peace of Rome or the peace of Augustus. And it was the peace that would supposedly end all wars. Now, the irony of all this is that Caesar Augustus had brought a certain measure of peace to the empire, mainly in comparison to the years of his predecessor, 
But the peace that it was attributed to him came at the cost of much violence and bloodshed. The years he fought in order to gain his power as the emperor of Rome were filled with war. One time he had 300 senators and equestrians executed because they had been political allies with one of his opponents, Lucius, the brother of Mark Antony. So Caesar's peace came by his exertion of violent force over his enemies. Peace at the cost of countless lives. Peace that meant surrender to Rome. Peace that meant paying Rome's taxes. Peace that in the long run did not last. And this brings us to his title, Augustus. Augustus was the title granted to Octavius by the Roman Senate, though it was likely granted to him at his suggestion. It was from the Latin word that meant to increase, or it could be translated the illustrious one, or the majestic one, or the one worthy of worship. And Caesar's full title was this, Imperator Caesar Divifilius Augustus, which translated means commander or emperor Caesar Augustus the Majestic, the illustrious one, the son of the divine. Now, that reference to the son of the divine was most likely a reference to Julius Caesar, who had post-mortem been raised to a status of godhood. But even so, you see how the Roman imperial cult deified their emperors. Caesar was a man, listen, Caesar was a man who became a god. Now, whether or not Augustus saw himself as a god, he certainly embraced the titles given to him that extolled his greatness and the praises given to him that he was, in fact, the one and only savior of the Roman world. His last public words were, Behold, I found Rome of clay, and I leave her to you of marble. Of marble. And in those days, during the reign of this man, Caesar Augustus, a baby was born in Bethlehem. And while the false gospel of twisted men was proclaiming the glory of Augustus and the glory of the peace of Rome, the angel of the Lord came down from heaven to certain shepherds in the field, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And to these Jewish shepherds who knew the one true God of Israel, who knew the peace of Rome was not all that the Romans had cracked it up to be, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so they sang, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill to men. And ever since that announcement from heaven came, men and women of this world are faced with this choice. They will either hearken to the voice of the angels and they will receive the good news of the one true Savior King born in Bethlehem, or they will create a rival announcement that lifts man up as Savior and Sovereign. In short, it will either be Caesar or it will be Christ. It will either be God and His anointed or man and man's anointed. 
Now we know that God has indeed ordained human governments and their role in matters of law and order to punish the evildoer. So this isn't a matter of submission to civil authorities as they act lawfully in that role. But what we're to see here is that there's only one sovereign ruler who is overall and savior of all. Caesar could not carry the weight of the world on his shoulders, but Christ can and Christ does. Caesar could not build an empire that would endure, but Christ can and Christ does. Caesar could not save humanity, but Christ can and Christ does. Secular rulers, governments, and their programs, humanistic initiatives, technological advances, medical health research and organizations, none of these can save mankind and bring peace on earth. And all of them, listen carefully, all of them begin to rot and decay the minute they ascribe to themselves the role of the Savior King. There's only one who can save us from what really threatens to undo us. There's only one who can bring peace on earth. Only one who can deal with the problem and true plight of humanity. The one who was born in Bethlehem on Christmas Day. On Christmas, a new kind of king and a new kind of kingdom was born. One that came not by military might, but by the power of the Spirit. A king who exercises authority, not by violent force, but by the word of his mouth and the laying down of his life for this broken, this twisted, this sin-cursed world. Matthew 20, 25-28, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now I spoke two weeks ago about Christ as the promised King, whose kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. And this kingdom was not merely a spiritual kingdom set in heaven, but that Christ's rule was being manifested on earth and would one day be fully and completely realized here on this earth. That the nations are His inheritance, that eventually every knee will bow to Him and confess that He alone is Lord of lords and King of kings. That this is the, where, where our world is actually headed. The sovereignty of Christ ruling and reigning. The glory of God. The knowledge of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's where we're going, whether it seems like it or not. But here is something that we must understand as well. That to put this world to rights, we needed not only a Savior, a sovereign, and a righteous King, we needed a Savior. A Savior who would get to the source of everything that went wrong in this world. Mankind was set against her Creator. Everything terrible. Every tragedy. Every act of evil. Every war. Sickness and death. Every vile thing stemmed from our rebellion against a holy God and His good design for us. Whatever then the rulers of men can do and do, they cannot fix what is fundamentally broken. Peace on this earth cannot happen unless there's peace with God. And the only one who could accomplish this was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And the only way it could be accomplished would be for Him to give His life as a ransom for many. And He did. He was born that He might die. 
and in dying that he might atone for the sins of men and women and reconcile them to God. This was the one and only way to peace on earth. And the task then that he's given to the church, that he's given to us, is to proclaim this good news and to call men and women everywhere to be reconciled to their God through Jesus Christ, receive him as the Savior and King, and in response to his gracious action toward you that he laid down his life for you and he rose again in response to that, serve him all your days. Surrender your life to him. Well, I told you Augustus' last public words. Here were his last private words to those who were around him when he died. Have I played the part well? Then applaud as I exit. Those those were his last private words. Have I played the part well? Then applaud as I exit. The last words of the one true Savior King on the cross as he bled for you and for me were, it is finished. It's accomplished. It is done. No question concerning man's thoughts of him. No request for the applause of man. Simply a declaration that what he had come to do, he had indeed accomplished. And three days later, he proved himself to be true. And this world will never be the same. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, 6 and 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's our Savior, that's our King. He's come, and the world will not be the same. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the incarnation of your Son and the birth of our Savior. And as we celebrate Christmas this week, this day, and the next, with food, festivities, and gifts, help us to do so in faith and with great joy for the King who came and gave his life for us and rose for us and now reigns at your right hand. So then... May the kingdom of our world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, that he would reign forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.